All right. We're glad y'all are here, ladies. Thanks for trusting us with your time tonight. We've got the treat of having Nika teach us tonight. And before she comes up, I'll say a prayer if you would. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here. We're grateful that you have preserved your word. Um, and we know every part of your word is helpful and instructive and powerful. So we pray that even though parts of this particular scripture tonight were confusing or difficult or just um, just so detailed that doesn't seem to um, it doesn't seem to even be relevant to what we're experiencing today. I pray that through NICA that you would clarify exactly what you want each one of us to learn tonight. Um, Through your powerful Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask you to bring your word to life so that we can apply it and that we can be changed. And I pray for the small groups tonight as they discuss the lesson that um, the groups would be um, just constructive and helpful to each other and encouraging, and um, that just through the discussion and through the questions that you would teach and train us. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit promises to do that for us, and um, we just love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how many of y'all, when you read this week's lesson, were like, that is really weird, and I feel bad for whoever has to teach it? Just kidding. I was the only one that felt that way. It's funny. I was like, who assigned me this passage? But the truth is I I did. I assigned me this passage. So um, I'm actually really excited to teach tonight because if you guys remember, we've said Exodus is a book about rescue, redemption, and revelation. And tonight is one of those first real lessons where we get to see the revelation of God. We get to see how his word reveals more of his character. When I was in grad school, um, some of my electives that I had outside of the theology classes were in creative writing. I'm fascinated by it. I think I get fascinated by things that I can't do. And so I took these classes with the, with the artsy students. And one of the things that we read was an article, is was really an essay by a guy named Donald Murray. And he, his essay was titled, All Writing is Autobiography. All writing is autobiography. And several people took him to task and they're like, no, 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 like not all writing is autobiography, but I happen to agree with him. I think that all writing reveals something about the author. I think it reveals either something you're interested in or how you would portray things or things that you're passionate about. One of the first rules of writing is write what you know. And so I think all writing tends to reveal something about ourselves. Maybe it's like a modern day Instagram account, right? All Instagram accounts are autobiographical in what you, what you post, right? And if it's not what your life is like, it's what your life you wish it were like, right? So if you follow me on Instagram, you know I love cats and I love my nieces and nephew. I mean, that's it. That's all there is to this life that I live. And so, yeah, I I think tonight what we're going to see is that in God's writing, in this law, in this this code section that we're in, is we're going to see that it's incredibly autobiographical of God. I think tonight we're going to get a firsthand glimpse of what God cares about through his law. We're going to see that God cares about things like worship and, and justice and the poor and things like that. And through that, my hope for tonight is, is that we won't get caught up on all the weird details of this passage because I understand some of the things that are like, well, that's odd. I've never committed that sin, nor did I know that was a sin. Um, but instead, I think we're going to get a glimpse of what God cares about. And in knowing what he cares about, that will determine how we should then act as we leave here tonight. So one of the things you've probably heard me say before is that God's law is both regulatory and revelatory. Regulatory, can you hear me? 
It's echo or can't hear. Which one is it? I can't hear y'all either. No, I'm just kidding. What? Is there a... hey That's awesome. So starting from the top, I'm kidding. I've just been talking about how this side of the room is my favorite. And you guys got to throw them something. They didn't hear the first half. So... Yeah, so I've said before, God's law is both regulatory and revelatory. And so tonight we're going to see that. Regulatory in that it, it, it regulates how we should behave, how the people of God should behave. And then revelatory in that we will see what God cares about. And so right off the bat, what does God care about? Well, God cares about worship. God cares about worship. You know how I know that? Because he bookends this section with how to worship him, both individually in the beginning and corporately on the back end. Right away, it talks about individual worship is such that we don't worship idols because it doesn't go well for us and that we build our own altars, not out of cut stone, not, not out of ornateness, not out of opulence, but simply come to them and worship. This is really big because you'll hear people talk about in the New Testament, see in the Old Testament, only the priests could go into the Holy of Holies. And we're going to learn about the Holy of Holies coming up in the next few weeks. We're going to learn about certain places that women could not go to worship God. That in the corporate setting, women were absolutely restricted in certain ways as to what they can do. And then we talk about in the New Testament, in light of Christ, that he's the one that tears the veil and women are welcomed in the Holy of Holies. And we love that. But it would be a false belief to think that women weren't able to worship in the Old Testament. We absolutely were. We absolutely were able to build these altars, these individual altars, and come before the Lord and worship him on an individual basis. We learned from this that it's expected that not only do we worship on Sabbath, not only do we worship corporately, but it's expected that we worship God on a regular, consistent basis. Not just Saturday, not just, well, Saturday for them, Sunday for us, not just on the Sabbath, but every day. Every day God wants us to worship him. And that's awesome. You may be asking yourself, why could they not build altars or steps up to the altar? Well, it's actually really simple. So in the ancient Near East, they didn't wear underwear. And um, nakedness was considered an offense against God. We know this because we see Noah's big sin at the end of his life as he gets drunk and he's naked and his boys find him. We also see David when the Ark of the Covenant comes in. He begins dancing. He's naked. And his wife, Michael's like, you nasty. Put some clothes on. Right? So nakedness is an affront. So imagine if you're building steps and you're walking up to the altar you're exposed, okay? So that's why that rule is there. That's why they don't have steps up to it. But, but this is a cool thing that God allows us to bring individual worship to him. And then on the back end, he talks about corporate worship. Corporate worship was more than just coming together and singing hymns and doing a sermon with three points with all the same first letter, and then we call it a day. His worship was built around this, this, this weekly perpetuation of this opportunity to rest and reflect He built in rest so that we could be reminded and and consistently flow out of our lives in a way that worships him and honors him corporately. So the people of God could corporately come together and go, we care about God. We're going to stop what we're doing and we're going to reflect on what he's done for us. We're going to worship him appropriately. Part of that worship experience was God would tell them that every seventh year to leave the field fallow, to not grow it. And if you read that at first glance, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, so the farmers worked for six straight years, and then on the seventh year, they didn't do anything. And you may be wondering, like, how did they eat on the seventh year? Well, that's actually probably not what was happening. Instead, each field that a farmer had, each different produce, would be left fallow for one out of the seven years. And so if you had a barley field and a grape field and and an olive field and and all that, I, I actually have no clue what grows in Cana. So yesterday I used these examples, and then I was like, I have no idea what grows there. But turns out, all that grows there. So I got really lucky. So 
So every seventh year, each of those fields would be left foul. And the reason why the text tells us is so that the poor could glean from them. Part of God's normative worship experience is so that you can take care of the poor among you. Part of our normative worship experience should be to look out for those among us who need extra help. Part of our worship experience is so that we can stop and go, how's everybody doing? How are we doing? Because we're in this together. And so I love that God cares about worship. And so what's the big so what for us today? Well, the big so what for us today is that we should worship God. We, we should worship him not just on Sunday. Not, not just on Sunday, but we should worship him every day. Every day should be an act of worship. There, there's the quote that says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I love that. I love that that's what God cares about. Before he gets into the, the, the ticky-tack laws of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, he just says, hey, come to me with your worship. And so that should be a normative part of our experience in, with the Lord. Not only does God care about worship, but God cares about the poor. We've already touched on it a little bit, but, but we're going to see this even more so in this unit. This unit about slaves and, and really concubines could obviously be very uncomfortable to the modern reader if taken out of context. To the modern reader, our idea of slavery conjures up what happened when colonials uh, would take people from Africa or from uh, Central America or South America and take them from their land, which, by the way, the Bible strictly prohibits kidnapping, take them from the land, bring them to America, give them harsh treatment, and never allow them freedom. That is not what God had intended. And so when people read these passages, they have to be able to make the distinction between colonial slavery, which God would never have allowed according to his word, they clearly would have thought was wrong, that was based on race, that was based on might being right, that is not what God had intended. Instead, slavery in the Old Testament was provision for the poor. There were times that men were not able to provide for their family, and so in an ability to be able to provide for them, they would sell themselves into slavery. It was never permanent. As you saw in your text, every seventh year you gained your freedom. And not only that, there's passages in Deuteronomy that tell us that if a slave escapes from its slave master, he does not have to return. And that tells us that if you were a cruel slave master, there was an opportunity for freedom. There was an opportunity to come out from under the harsh bondage. God looked at what what the Egyptians were doing to his people, the Israelites, and he frowned upon that. He would never want that for his people among each other. And so we always have to be careful when we take our modern mindset and we try to infuse it back into the text. We have to be very clear that we understand what God is doing here is he's creating opportunity for the poor in his society to have a way to make provision for their family. And so although it's not ideal, it was a way that God entered into space and time among this culture in order to make provision But we know that in the New Testament, when Jesus comes in in Colossians or in Galatians, it tells us there is now neither slave nor, nor free man, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, that in Christ, this incremental pushing of us back to Eden takes a massive step forward. And so don't make the mistake of reading into this and thinking somehow God would condone the slavery as we know it. He would not have. Instead, he's making provision for the poor. Furthermore, when you look at the laws for how a man could take a female slave, which was really concubinage, Again, that would be obviously atrocious to the modern mindset. But what he was doing is he was making sure that these women who in this culture were viewed as property, he's making provision for them. He says things like, if you choose to take a third wife, you cannot diminish the food of your first and second. Whereas in this culture and every other people group, if you were done with your wife, if she couldn't give you children, if, you didn't, if she didn't please you, you just send her away. And here God is saying, no, you need to take care of her. You need to provide for her. 
Again, not the ideal. If you ever want to know God's ideal, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God made male and female, and he saw that it was good, and he meant for them to be together forever. And then because they ate the apple, the whole world shattered. And God enters space and time with his law and incrementally pushes us back to Eden. Then we get to Revelation, and we see that we all stand on equal footing before the throne of God, singing praises to our King Jesus. And in the in-between, God is pushing us back towards the ideal. We take a massive leap forward in in Ephesians 5 because now the way that, that God speaks about husbands and wives is he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. So even if in the Old Testament it bothers you, you go, hey, but in just a couple thousand, 1,500 years, Jesus comes onto the scene and he goes, hey, I'm changing the game here. I want you to love them so much so that you would die for them. You would die for them. And so don't make the mistake of of reading our modern mindsets back in this and missing the point that this was provision to care for the poor. This was provision to care for people that without this system would have been cast away in society, would have been destitute, would have had no hope. And God creates a way for them to have provision. God creates a way for them to have safety. God creates a way for them to not be discarded among society. And so I love that God loves the poor. And so what's the so what? We should care about the poor. I've already said it before, but it should be a normative part of our worship experience. If Watermark's not your home church, I suggest you ask your church, how are we caring for the poor among us? Watermark is caring for the poor among us. We have a charis ministry. We have several provisions made for the poor around us, but not only in our corporate setting, I would just say in your individual setting, what are you doing with what God has given you to care for the poor among, among you? God cares about worship. God cares about the poor. And God cares about justice. In verses 21 and chapter 21, 12 through 32, we see that God gives all of these laws on what to do if you're wronged, if, if harm is made. And right away, we start off saying, hey, look, if you accidentally kill somebody, your life does not have to be taken. This is radically different than what's going on in the culture around them. If you accidentally killed somebody, their family, it was their obligation to take your life. Not only that, they might take your life and your wife's life and your kid's life. See, the culture around the Canaanites during this time didn't care about justice. They cared about vengeance. They didn't care about justice. They cared about vengeance. They cared about might being right. And in fact, many of these laws were meant to protect the poor. If you took a man's life, if he was a poor man and you were a rich man, oftentimes it just didn't matter. And here God's saying, no, it absolutely matters. So if you take a life, there's a penalty for that. If you harm someone, there's a penalty for that. One of the things you might have noticed in verse 15, it it says, if you strike your parents, then you should be put to death. And then in verse 16, it says, if you kidnap somebody, you should be put to death. And then in verse 17, it says, if you curse your parents, you should be put to death. So we go, parents, kidnapping parents. And for some of you type A's or you editors or any of that, you might be going, "Um, Moses, could you just write them in order? It'd be great if you would just put your thoughts together. That's one paragraph and then a transition sentence and then the next paragraph, right? Isn't that how we write? Yeah, well, we write that way because we're not an oral society. What's really cool about this is this shows us how Moses was writing in such a way for the people to be able to know the law, for them to be able to memorize it. Many of them wouldn't have the ability to read, nor would they have their own copy of the, of the Old Testament in their hands. And so they had to learn it the old-fashioned way by simply memorizing it. And so it uses this thing called a chiastic structure, which is just an X, and it's throughout this whole section. You could go back and look. And so parents, kidnapping parents, parents, kidnapping parents. And so as you're memorizing, you're like, uh, something about my parents, don't kidnap people, something about my parents. Oh yeah, don't, don't hit them, don't kidnap, don't curse them. All right, you're going to walk out of here, you're going to know that. You basically have verses 15 through 17 memorized. You're welcome. 
So what's the implication of that? The implication is it was expected of them and expected of us that we should know the law. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I depart on your law day and night. May it not leave me. When I know your law, it goes well for me. It's it's an incredible admonition to us today that we should know his law. Because by knowing his law, we know of God. By knowing his law, we're able to know that God cares about justice. And so what's the big so what? We should seek justice and not just for ourselves, but for anybody who's oppressed. We should seek justice, not just because you were wrong, but because justice is something that God values. It's a quality of his in the same way that love is or beauty is or mercy is, and we should seek those things. So much so that in the book of Micah, he tells us that to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. And so I, I have jury duty on Monday. And so if anybody's a lawyer uh, and can get me out of that, I would greatly appreciate that. Um, but no, the truth is, is I'm, I'm, I should want to be on a jury. And so should you. Because I know what justice is. I know what it is. I don't confuse it with vengeance. And I don't, I don't know because I'm special. I know because I know God, who is the author of justice. And so when you think about if your kid was on trial or someone you loved was on trial, wouldn't you want the jury full of people who would seek justice or their vengeance? Yeah. And so I will admit I'm having a hard time having a good attitude about it, mostly because my birthday was in the middle of January and I had to go to the courthouse then because I have a lead foot. And so uh, parking's a nightmare. I don't know if y'all been down to the courthouse lately, but if you get the chance, pass. Um, So I'm struggling to have a good attitude. But it is funny that I'm getting ready to teach this passage and God sends me the jury duty notice the first time in my life I've ever had jury duty. I've evaded it for a long time by being in grad school my entire adult life. And so I don't think it's a coincidence. I think God is going, hey, you say that we should care about justice. Well, put your money where your mouth is. And so I love organizations like International Justice Missions. I love organizations that seek to to bring about justice for the cause of those who need somebody to champion it for them for the weak, the disenfranchised, the poor among us. So we should seek justice, not just for ourselves, but because the value of justice is rooted in the character of God. So God cares about worship. God cares about the poor. God cares about justice. And God cares about relationships. We see in the next section, chapter 21, 33 through 22, 15, we have all of these laws about what to do if, if you cause property harm or if an ox falls into a pit and all of these things. And the truth of the matter is, is every time God says you have to make restitution. And it's not because God values property, it's because God values relationships. If you borrow something of mine and you break it, we have the issue of that you broke it, but the bigger issue is now our relationship is broken. Because I'm like, are you trustworthy? Do you not value my things? Did you take advantage of me? All those things that we go through, right? Anybody have roommates? Yeah, she borrows your dress and then it comes back with a rip and you're just like, I hate you, move out, right? Isn't that how we do that? I mean, it's not that severe, but, but yeah, the truth is, is that when we cause damage to people, God's not so much concerned about the property, but he's concerned about the relationship that now has the damage. And God cares about relationship. At Watermark, we care about relationships. We will double down on conflict resolution anytime, anywhere. In fact, we have an entire sermon series going on 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 Sunday mornings about it. And on your table is a conflict field guide, something that we wrote years ago that I, I think Todd Wagner, as our pastor, does better than almost anybody else I know is conflict resolution. And the reason why we do it is because relationships matter to God. And if they matter to God, they should matter to us. God cares about relationships. In this, it also shows us that God cares that might is not right. 
Again, if you were a poor person and somebody killed your ox, you might be like, hey, you owe me an ox. And if the, if the powerful person is in your culture and he's rich and he's wealthy, you might look at you and go, I'm not paying it back. This happened all the time in Cana, that the might was always right. And instead, God equals the playing field and says, no, in my people, everybody's on equal footing. In my people, when you break it, you buy it. That's how it works. Because he cares about relationships. And so what's our so up? Well, we fix what's broken. If you have conflict that's unresolved, you should fix it. If you have a relationship that's strained, you should fix it. If, if you broke something of your roommates, you should fix it. And, and not for the sake of the item, but for the sake of the relationship that's at risk. God cares about worship. God cares about the poor. God cares about justice. He cares about relationships. And he cares about outsiders. God absolutely cares about outsiders. And this is really important. This is where we get to some of the laws that you're like, okay, no sorcery, no bestiality, and no sacrifices to other gods. And you're like, hey, you wouldn't write it if it wasn't happening, right? Anybody ever work at Canacook? Anybody? Yeah. So if you look in the Canacook, Canacook is a Christian sports camp in Branson, Missouri. It's a geriatrics Las Vegas. I loved it. Spent five summers of my life there. Awesome. But there's a playbook, and it's something for all the new counselors to come in and understand what the rules are. And you know that when you see a rule in there, such as like, don't let the kids pee off the balcony because there's people below them. That's only in there because kids peed off the balcony onto people below them. And so they would also say, here's a list of names that we don't call each other. And I'm actually kind of scared to say some of them because I think they might have been really offensive at another time. And I just don't know what they are. But like some of the more mild ones, you couldn't say turkey you couldn't say butthead, which I was like, okay, I guess that's offensive, and on and on. But there were some in there that I'm like, this has to have been from the 60s. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know. How is that offensive? And so, of course, one of them was clowns. So we just go around calling each other clowns because clearly we respected all that. But what it means is, is God has to say this because it was happening. And the reason why these things were happening is because people were still practicing the occult religions around them. The bestiality, while in, in one sense it's, it's, it's an egregious sin because of the sexual nature of it, but it's more egregious to God because it was their way of, of paying homage to a fertility God other than, than Yahweh God. Or sorcery was conjuring up spirits that were not God so you could discern the will of God and you could decide what direction he was sending you and all that. And so if you're in the community of God and you're saying, I belong to God and you're committing these sins, what you're actually showing the outside world is that you don't really know who God is and it means they're not going to be able to figure out who God is. Right? If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm from the land of Canaan, and I understand that you're different, and I've heard the renown of what happened in Egypt, and, and then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, but um, I sleep with animals because I believe that that will bring fertility to my land. Then suddenly they're confused in what it means to follow Yahweh. Or if somebody comes to you and goes, hey, what, what would you do in my place? And they go, let me conjure up a spirit. Let me get some sorcery going. And this was grossly offensive to God because it's going to keep outsiders as outsiders. A common day example may be that all of us are hanging out and we all claim to be believers and then somebody that you've been loving on, that you've been evangelizing to, or maybe somebody young who you love, your niece, your nephew, your daughter, your whoever, and they start hanging out with the person among us that claims to be a believer, but they're also that person that all the time's like, well, Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a good moral teacher. And you may be tempted to be like, get, get away from them. I don't want your poor theology, your poor teaching, any of that infiltrating this young person or this weak person in the face mind. In fact... In Matthew 18, when Jesus comes on the scene, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for them to hang a millstone around their neck and be flung into the ocean. That's how Jesus feels about it. 
And he's obviously being hyperbolic because he doesn't want you taking your life. But his point is this, is that your theology better match what's right. Because if you're causing people who don't know me to be farther from me, that's a horrific offense. Because it's more at stake than just theology. It's people's souls that are at stake. And so that's why God comes down hard on these things in this section. He wants the sojourner, he wants the outsider to be welcomed in the people of God in a way that they can know him, that they can worship him, that they can proclaim what is true about him. And so what's the big so what about that? Watch your theology. Watch your theology closely. Paul tells Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely because in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So just be careful what you say about God because outsiders are watching, especially if you're walking with the Lord and they're gonna ask you, what's what's the hope that's in you? What's the joy that I see? And if you say anything other than the cross of Christ, what are you doing? And so that's why God makes these punishable offenses by law. And so what's the big so what for us? Well, the big so what is that if you have any recipes that require boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, you should just pull those out of your recipe. I'm just kidding. Uh, we realized a lot of people had questions about this, so let me just help you. It was an ancient Near Eastern belief that if you boiled a young goat in its mother's milk, it would cause your goats to become more fertile. It's another one of those old wives' tales that God's like, don't do that. Because in doing that, you're trusting in something other than me to bring about good and welfare and, and good. And so if you're wondering what that's about, it's not about recipes. It's about believing. So if you have a recipe, be free. But what's the big so what? Well, the big so what might be, you might be sitting here going, so let me get this straight because God cares about it. I have to care about it. Well, actually, yeah, uh, because he's God. So he gets a vote and it's bigger than yours. But what's so great about that is I don't have to tell you that and strong arm you and go, God gets his way because he's God and all that. I get to tell you that God gets his way because it goes well for us. It's good for us that God cares about these things. And in turn, we get to care about these things. Like, well, like, let's go back and look at them. And so worship. God cares about worship, so we should worship. I have to tell you, my January was a whirlwind. We came back and we did recharge and then we did staff retreat where I think I slept 45 minutes over three whole days. Um, I had a birthday, which I don't remember, but I got a whole year older. So it was awesome. Uh, we launched Bible study. I launched a theology class. I launched a webinar. I've taught twice now. I'm teaching at D-Town. I mean, on and on and on. And suddenly I woke up on Sunday of this week and I was like, I'm I'm tired. I'm tired. It caught up to me. You know why? Because I wasn't Sabbathing the way I should. I wasn't spending extended time with the Lord. I wasn't worshiping God in the way that I should in January. The first thing to go when you get busy is often your time with the Lord. And I feel it. Like I physically feel it. And so lest you're worried about me, I've looked ahead of my schedule. I've cleared a lot of it out. I will be taking a step back. And so I, I know. I, I know that I'm wrong. But don't you love the way you feel after you worship God? Don't you love that renewed sense of of hope, that renewed sense of vigor and energy that comes when you worship God? Or how every Sunday he tells you to stop and rest and trust me. Doesn't that go well with you? Yeah, it's a good thing that God cares about worship because when we worship, it goes well for us. Or how about the fact that God cares for the poor? This this matters. You know the number one indicator of of violence in any community is, is how poor the community is. That's the number one indicator of it. So I mentioned IJM earlier, International Justice Missions. They go around and they try to take care and they try to bring justice to areas where people often haven't had it. So young children being sold as sex slaves or or people sold into modern day slavery. And and what they find is the reason why this happens, the reason why there's rampant violence in the world today in many of these third world countries is because they're poor. 
And so they have to take advantage of the only resource they have around them, which isn't planting, which isn't resources, which isn't industry, it's people. So if they say, I can't grow a field, then I'll sell this 12-year-old. She'll make me money. They, the Gary Haugen, the leader of IJM, wrote a book called The Locust Effect, and he talks about that when the locusts came in during, during the Great Depression and cleared it all out, then suddenly violence began to happen in small towns in America. It's the number one indicator of violence. So you, don't you think it would go well for us to care for the poor around us? Right? What, what, what do you think when you go into some of the poorer towns in, in, or poorer areas of Dallas? What do you do? You lock your door. You roll up your window. You turn your ring around. That's not a coincidence. It's indicative. God has always intended for the church to care for the poor so we don't have to be violent. So we don't have to take advantage of young girls and young boys and widows and orphans. He has commanded us to look after widows and orphans so that they will not be victims of violence. It goes well with us when we care for the poor. What about justice? Yeah. Do I have to convince you that that matters? Do I have to convince you that when somebody takes advantage of somebody, they should be removed from from society because they're now not safe? Right? We should care about justice because it makes our place a better place. It makes it safer to worship God, safer to raise our kids, safer to talk about Jesus. It goes well with us when we care for those things. What about relationships? Y'all know when you have that, that, that rub because you know, like, every Thanksgiving you've got to go home and you're like, not the mother-in-law, right? Or that cousin that's just odd that everybody's like, please don't put me next to them. Please. please. I did it the last two years. Like, yeah. Or maybe you've got a tiff with your roommate. You've got a tiff with your husband and you're going to go home tonight. And you're like, I don't want to go home. Yeah, there's a reason why God cares about relationships, because it makes us sick when they're not well. God cares about it because we're not complete unless our relationships are well. We were made in the image of God. God, who was triune, who was trinity before the beginning of time. God is relationship. He's never not been in relationship. And so when he created us, he meant for us to be in it. And so when they're broken, we're broken. An extension of us is not well. So it's a good thing that God values this and pushes us towards healing in that area. Or what about outsiders? Don't we want to evangelize the world? Right? I mean, wouldn't it be a better place if ISIS didn't exist? Wouldn't it be a better place if if people weren't caught up in their rampant and sin lifestyles? Yeah, we should be the most welcoming place in the world so that just droves of people come in and go, tell me about your God because there's something different about you all. And when they come in, we don't tell them anything other than the truth of the cross that could save their life. And so how do we do that? How do we know what God wants of us today? Because obviously a lot of these laws are pretty antiquated and, and many of you are like, I'm, I'm not in danger of digging a pit and somebody's animal falling into it. And if so, it's probably a dog and we could be like, get out, Fido, you know. Yeah, so, so what do we do? Well, we literally ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? I love the WJD bracelet. I actually usually am wearing one. And I realize like everyone I wear, I'd be like, the 90s called, they want the bracelet back. I'm like, okay, wasn't a believer then, so making up for lost times. I was a believer for part of the 90s, but yeah, but, but I, I actually like it because I do have to ask myself, right? Sometimes we're not always sure what the law says, but we know what God would have us do because we look at his son and his word and how Jesus would react in that situation. You can just always ask yourself, what's the most loving and kind thing I can do in this situation? That's probably what God would have you do. 
And so I, I know a lot of these laws are confusing and maybe you're like, I, I don't know how to directly apply this, but maybe the way that we directly apply it is by caring about what God cares about and we get a firsthand look of it in the visible image of the invisible God, which is our, our Jesus. And so I just encourage you all to think about the life of Christ. Think about what God has revealed about himself in the text and live your lives in that model, being made more and more in the likeness of his son. Let me pray for you all. Father, we just thank you that your words, which were penned 3,500 years ago, matter today. And that God, although I, I don't know always the direct implication of, of what to do with, with certain texts, I know that each one of them is your revelation. And through these, you want us to know more about you so we can care about the things you care about. And as we do so, it'll go well for us and those around us. And so God, maybe we be women who seek to be more like you and your son. And God, when we find ourselves in a situation where we're not quite sure what to do with your word, push us back to your character. Remind us that you're good and you're loving at all times. At all times. Be with the conversations in the small groups tonight. Allow them to be fruitful. And Lord, continue to allow our hearts to be knit to your son. It's in your son's name I ask these things. Amen.